Judaism, Christianity, and Islam constitute the three major faiths of what is often called the Abrahamic religions. Together with a few other traditions such as the Jews and the Baha'i, these different religions hold in common their belief in the God of Abraham, the belief that God that created all things spoke and revealed himself to a man named Abraham in a distant past. Today, the adherents of this single set of religions are estimated to be around 4.3 billion or more. It is in some sense, though, ironic that a clear majority of the people in the world today from widely different ethnicities, cultures, and languages all call this man, Abraham, and his wife Sarah as their spiritual forebearers. After all, historically speaking, we don't even know that these individuals really existed. But that's the point. That's part of the message of their story. So let's consider what that means as we begin this new chapter in our journey in What Do You Mean God Speaks? where we explore important ideas, insights, and stories in Christianity for the skeptics who want to understand religion to the Christians who have questions about their own beliefs and everyone in between. I am Paul Sungwa-jung, and this is our second episode of the third season on the historical in-slash-significance of Abraham's story. Modern scholars tend to separate the book of Genesis into a two-part narrative. The first part, which we explored in the previous season of this series, is called a primeval history, and it consists of the first 11 chapters narrating the creation of the cosmos, the first human couple living in a paradise, their fall, the first murder, the great flood, and the Tower of Babel. The second part, which we will explore this season, is called the ancestral history, and it consists of the remaining chapters from 12 to 50. This part narrates the lives of the ancestors of the people of Israel, from Abraham and Sarah, then their children, and their children, and their children. Now, until the 1970s, Scholars believe that the historical portion of Genesis really began from this ancestral history chapters. The primeval history, they had concluded, was not a literal historical account of past events, but rather a general description of reality, of the relation between God, the cosmos, and humanity, presented as a story. And yes, one reason for this view was the advances in modern science. But I should again point out that Christian theologians, since way back in the early church, raised the possibility that Genesis was not presenting a literal account of how our world came to be. They thought that God may be communicating profound truths in a way that humanity can understand with metaphors and stories. Yet this was only a possibility for them, and until the 19th century, they had no compelling reason to not read Genesis literally. Yet even after modern science changed how many of us think about the primeval history chapters in Genesis, most historians still held the view that the ancestral history from the 12th chapter and onward was a straightforward historical account, records about a family who lived 3,500 to 4,000 years ago in the Middle Bronze Age Near East. This view, however, has been largely abandoned since the 1970s among the scholars. But wait, what that means is kind of complicated, and we'll get to that later. There is still something that makes the first 11 chapters of Genesis and the remaining chapters markedly different from each other, aside from the historical aspect. And it has to do with 
the kinds of relation between God and everything else that the two parts describe, in the different ways in which we can relate to God. So the ancestral history is about how a specific family at a particular time comes to relate to God as time passes. The primeval history is about how everything and everyone relates to God at all times. The creation account of the first chapter sets the foundational frame. God is the creator of all things. So the Spirit of God is that which breathes upon the waters that represent the infinite possibilities of what can be. Everything that happens and everything that comes to be is God speaking. Well, even saying it like that is missing some key nuance that would be especially interesting to modern scientific readers. So remember the previous season? The Genesis creation account is separated into parts. God creates things in stages, in six days, and several times God pauses, seeing that what has come to be so far is good. This in turn implies that God could have stopped there, so the universe could have just been a single searing moment of light in the darkness. It could have been an expanse of energies, particles, and possibilities. It could have been filled with stars and galaxies, yet with no life. Yet God would still be the creator of such a universe. Such reality would still be God speaking according to Genesis. It may even be that God does create such worlds too beyond our own. However, our world is not that kind of world. The universe that we live in, which God is speaking now, is full of life with creatures like us who peer into the heavens in wonder and speak with God. That is our world in relation to God. And from the foundational frame set by the creation account, the rest of the primeval history paints a background, a setting in which every other story in the Bible afterward will unfold. So this is a series of narratives that describe how all of humanity relates to God at all times. So Genesis describes humanity as created in the image of God. We relate to God by flourishing and going everywhere, by loving each other as the best of who we are, and by tending to the trees in Eden that represent the endless possibilities of life and eating the fruits that they bear. However, one tree, one possible path in life that we may take was a fearful distrust toward what God may speak in our lives, leading in turn to our distrust toward life and other people, including those we love. And that's the story of the fall. This distrust, bound with life's hardship and our resentment and failure, leads some of us to respond to it by ending a life. And that's the story of Cain and how he murdered his brother due to his distorted relationship with God, with life, and with other people. And when an entire society follows the ways of Cain, it fills a world with violence, corruption, and deceit, which then unravels everything. That is how reality unfolds, how God speaks for judgment in response to what we make of our world. That's the story of the flood. And those who refuse to be like Cain and build a world, however small, in which trust is kept, violence is rejected, and God's voice is heard, are people like Noah and his family who survives this flood. Even then, humanity may still try to build a city which holds everyone in one place, a place where everyone speaks and thinks the same and live under a towering legacy to which nothing more will ever be added. But God will push us out from such a place, 
We will be made to speak and think differently, and such a legacy will never be complete. That's a story of Babel. So this set of narratives is the universal description of humanity's relation to God, ranging from the most ideal to the worst-case scenarios. It is about how reality unfolds, about what happens in life, and thus what God speaks for every human being at any time. And it is from this universal time that the book of Genesis begins the story of a family living through a specific period in time. So what differentiates their story? Well, in the previous episode uh, titled, What Do You Mean There's No God?, I said that the Jews and the Christians perceived God in everything that happens, the entire cosmos and all of history. But I also added that they believed that there was a direction to what was happening around them. And by the way, I've made some revisions to that episode earlier this month, especially in the second half, to make its points clearer and flow better. I've added re to its title, so if you listen to the one without that re in the title, uh, that's the older version. Anyway, if there is a direction to what is happening, that means that there is some sort of progression. So you're either going further towards something or further away from it. It is, simply put, a journey. So the primeval history in Genesis sets the stage by describing how all things and all of humanity relate to God. Then, from that setting, the ancestral history begins the story of a people who relate to God by taking on a journey. And it is a multi-generational journey. What one generation learns in their journey with God are passed down to the next so that they begin from where their parents left off. And the direction of a journey is toward a specific promise, or rather, a set of unfolding promises given to Abraham, which is then passed down to his descendants. So let's look at the first of these promises, which is the most significant and foundational to the rest. It is found in the opening of the 12th chapter in Genesis. The Lord has said to Abraham, who would later change his name to Abraham, Go out from your country, your relatives, and your father's household to a land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and those who treat you as insignificant, I will remove my blessing, so that all the families of the world will be blessed through you. The entire Hebrew Bible, or the Christian Old Testament, is in some sense about the journey toward this promise in the 12th chapter of Genesis. It is following the story of a people relating to God who is unfolding all of history toward the direction of this promise to Abraham. And this journey begins in the ancestral history chapters of Genesis. And this is why the question of whether Abraham's family really existed in the past is important. And it's not because the Bible needs to always report literal historical facts. There are many, many important truths that are not about what specific things happened in history. However, the promise to Abraham and his family's relationship with God who spoke this promise is something that has been or should have been unfolding through history from some time in the past. Now, the truths of the primeval history narratives in Genesis, at least if you understand them properly, are something that we could see for ourselves in the present. It is about what God speaks, how reality unfolds at all times, every time, including for us now. But the truth of the ancestral history is more specific. 
It is about what God unfolds for people who has received a specific promise. It is about whether God did unfold the events in history toward the direction of what God promised. So if Abraham, Sarah, and their family were not real people who lived in the past, then we cannot help but ask this question. In what sense can we say that God made a promise and fulfilled it? In what sense has God unfolded history toward the direction of the promise when the people who have supposedly journeyed toward this promise didn't exist? Of course, we can say that the story of Abraham's family and their journey toward God's promise is describing the kind of life that we all should live it out for ourselves. And this is quite true, but it still raises the problem of why we should live that kind of life. After all, the selling point of the story, to put it bluntly, is that we should do so because people in the past did live this out and they saw the promise come true. So, are they historical figures, this family, Abraham, Sarah, and their descendants? Well, when can we reasonably say that some specific person existed in the past? It's not like we can go back in time and check whether they were there. It's different from the natural sciences, which can check their theories in the present by experiments or, say, examining geological or fossil records. Even disciplines like archaeology say what kind of people or society existed in the past by examining their remains in the present day. But that's different from saying that some specific individuals really lived or some specific thing really happened in the past. So what makes us say something like that? And the simple answer is historical records, preferably the records of those people and events written in the time as closest to theirs as possible. And archaeological findings can also corroborate what these records say, or at least not contradict it. So for example, if the record says that a king named Ramses lived in Egypt 3300 years ago or so, and then you find a tomb built 3300 years ago with a name Ramses, then you're set. Of course, in most cases, it's not as clear-cut as this, but you get my point. So here is the main issue. For various reasons, most scholars believe that the first five books in the Bible, called the Torah, which includes the book of Genesis, was written around 2500 to 2700 years ago. Abraham's family, though, was supposed to have lived anywhere between 3500 to 4000 years ago. So the records we have on hand about Abraham were written around 1,000 years after he lived. Wait a minute though, doesn't the tradition say that it was Moses who wrote these books? And wasn't he a prophet who is said to have lived only a few centuries after Abraham? Yes, now we are talking about the version of Genesis that we are reading today. Well, to be precise, the one written in the Hebrew language since the rest of us are reading translations. So that final version, according to scholars, was completed around 2,500 years ago. Now, none of the five books of the Torah names Moses specifically as their author. There are times when the Christian New Testament calls Moses as the author, but they are referring to Moses as the one who taught the laws and regulations that are set forth in those books. And we can sort of understand what they mean this way. Your college physics textbook about Albert Einstein's theory of relativity is not actually written by Einstein himself, but you are still studying the work of Einstein through that book. Now, the issue about Moses is more complicated than that, but we won't get to that until another season. We should, however, go over what was happening when these books were likely being written. 
So here's a short summary. Around 3,000 years ago or so in the Levant, today's Palestine, Israel, and Syria, there were two nations called Israel and Judah. The people of these two kingdoms were closely related to each other culturally and ethnically, and they spoke and wrote in Hebrew. We know this not just from the Bible, but from the various records of other nations in the Middle East during that time and from the findings of contemporary archaeology. So about 2700 years ago, the kingdom of Israel was destroyed by the Assyrian Empire, which ruled over the lands of today's Iraq. The survivors from Israel fled and settled in Judah because of the close kinship between the two nations. And Judah lasted a hundred more years or so until a new empire, Babylon, invaded it. And sometime between 597 BC to 581 BC, so around 2600 years ago, Babylonians razed Judah's royal capital, Jerusalem, to the ground. The people living there were taken captive and deported to Babylon. So, exiled in a foreign land, these Hebrew-speaking captives from Judah were expected to fade away as a people with their faith forgotten and lost. After all, in those days, that's usually what happened to defeated peoples. However, something else happened. The exiles first mourned and then began to reflect. What had happened? Where did they go wrong? And if God speaks forth everything that happens, then what was God speaking through all of this? And it seems that they already had some idea. See, as far as historians can tell, and also according to the Bible, there were some voices in Israel and Judah in the past that had declared that their nations were under the judgment of God. People and their rulers had become unfaithful to their God, they said, and had filled their societies with injustice, hypocrisy, false worship, and idolatry. These voices warned that their nations were on the path to destruction. They were dismissed by the wider society in their day, but with Israel and Judah now destroyed, their words seemed to have been vindicated for the exiles. There was another message though, a message of hope. The exiles will be restored. Their land, their nation, their faith will one day be returned to them. God will bring this about. Then about 60 years later, in 539 BC, the Babylonian Empire fell to a new empire, Persia, which did something unprecedented for their time. The new empire permitted the captive exiles to return to their homeland and rebuild their city. And all through these turbulent years, the exiles wrestled with this one critical question. What is their relationship to their god? How can they properly relate to God that speaks forth everything that happens, including the events that led to the destruction and then the restoration of their nation? And by asking this question, they were trying to understand who they were as a people and what had happened to them and who they could become. And they wrote the book of Genesis and the story of their ancestors as part of their answer. Now, some people seem to think that this means that the authors of Genesis somehow just made up the characters like Abraham and the others who appear in the book. But if you think about it even a little bit, you'd know that that wouldn't work. People back then weren't stupid, at least any more than we are now. And the question of who your ancestors were was a big deal, especially in ancient times. People back then would already have some established belief and maybe even some stories about who their ancestors were. 
you couldn't just bake up some characters in your head one day and, and then tell people that these are their ancestors. They'd beat you with stones, literally. Instead, what most scholars today think is that the Hebrews back then already had older stories of figures like Abraham and Sarah, or later figures like Moses and so on. What these Hebrew exiles from Judah did, however, was to bring together the different variations of old stories and teachings and traditions that had been passed down in their communities. They also likely referenced some older records and texts, but they are lost to us now. This was a massive project with different groups of people spanning several generations, compiling and rewriting and editing and redacting what they brought together to understand their relationship with their God who unfolds all of history. What they completed was a tapestry of teachings, tales, and texts woven together into a new narrative adapted and retold in ways that resonated with their generation and what they were going through living in exile and then returning to their homeland. This project became the five books of the Torah, the first of which was the book of Genesis, or so the scholars believe. And herein is the difficulty. We think there were older stories and sources, but we don't have those. We don't know what they said. All we have is the version that was written around 2600 to 2700 years ago, and they aren't from the time of Abraham. So here's an illustration of what our difficulty is. So let's take the story of Robin Hood. You know, the famous outlaw hero from England who steals from the rich and gives to the poor. He's renowned for his skill with the bow, and he leads a band of outlaws camping in Sherwood Forest, fighting the tyranny of the hated sheriff of Nottingham. Of course, the story of Robin Hood could simply be a fable about how the common folk can resist tyrants. But Robin Hood may really be a historical figure who lived in the 13th century England. We do have mentions of him in the records dating from those days, or rather, there are several people from those days who could very well be the basis of his story. So okay, for argument's sake, let's say that one of those historical figures really was Robin Hood, and the basics of the story, the band of outlaws fighting for the oppressed against the tyrants of the day and so on, really did happen. Now, there have been many, many adaptations of Robin Hood's story into plays, TV shows, games, and movies. Well, Let's say we make another movie that draws upon these many variations to tell a new story. But in the 21st century today, our struggle with tyranny and oppression is not quite the same as a struggle in the 13th century England. So what would happen if the themes and issues that resonate with us today were put into this movie? Maybe the sheriff of Nottingham is a racist and his men are terrorizing or even murdering people from a particular race. Maybe Robin Hood can be played by a black person. I mean, it'd be nice for me if he was played by an Asian, but then again, it was considered a huge step for Hollywood just a few years back when they actually cast Asians for <gasps> Asian comic book characters. Anyway, maybe Maid Marian is fighting to become the next head of her noble house instead of her corrupt brother who is the heir just because he is male. Or maybe Will Scarlet is gay. Or maybe Friar Tuck is fighting for freedom of speech using the newly invented printing press. Yes, I know, the printing press in Europe was invented centuries later, but that's the point. And yes, maybe all of you are now realizing why I don't make movies.
The point is, such a movie would be based on the story of a people who really existed, because remember, we are going with the idea that there really was a historical Robin Hood. But the actual movie itself would not be historical. It would be a 21st century adaptation of the story. The core of that story and its themes may be from the original historical story, the band of outlaws fighting tyranny, but because what that means looks different in the 21st century, how the story portrays this idea and plot would be quite different in this movie. Now, let's say that in some distant future, this movie is the only remaining version of Robin Hood's story. If historians in that future were to ask whether Robin Hood in that movie was a historical figure, then the answer would be no. Robin Hood could not have been a black man. They'd also say that racism, gender inequality, persecution of the LGBT individuals weren't the issues that the common folk were fighting against in the 13th century England. And the printing press obviously wasn't invented yet either. Again, people in that future may realize that the movie is based on some older stories. But because that movie is all they got, they would have no way to know what exactly those older stories were. And so, they wouldn't be able to say if those stories were historically accurate and based on real people. And that's the difficulty with Genesis and the story of Abraham. That's what historians mean when they say that the Genesis story of Abraham and his family is not historical. What they mean is that their story, as portrayed in the book of Genesis, which is the only version of the story that we have, does not accurately depict the time and place that they supposedly lived. Now, if the story did accurately describe the historical situation of the time in which they lived, the historians would have concluded that the writers of Genesis had reliable records of what happened back then, preserved all the way from that period. But since the 1970s, they found that this wasn't the case. For example, in the story, Abraham owns camels, but camels weren't domesticated in that region until centuries later. And cities and nations which did not exist back then appear in the story. So, It is rather like how our Robin Hood movie does not accurately describe 13th century England historically. Now, there are some scholars who point out that aside from things like camels, Genesis does not contradict what we know about that time period. But for most historians, that is not quite good enough. They want to reconstruct what happened in Abraham's time. But they have no way of doing so, because they have no way of going beyond that Genesis story which was written a thousand years later. They have no way to get to the older stories or records nearer to that time. And if they can't do that, they have no way of assessing whether those older stories, which they don't know, are based on historical events. So the historians are not saying that people like Abraham's family who encountered God and whose lives were a journey toward the promise from God never existed in the past. They don't know that. They can't know that. Yet that's what Christians are concerned about, at least those who aren't biblical literalists about everything. So the historians and Christians are seeking different things from the story of Abraham's family. Historians want to know whether that story can be used to accurately reconstruct the past. Christians want to know if that story truly describes how God related to real people like themselves. In the first episode of the second season, I introduced the idea of accommodation. 
This is a core Christian notion that God speaks to us truths that we can grasp with our current limitations and level of knowledge. So the Genesis creation account, for example, is accommodated to the ancient Hebrews living 2600 years ago and their understanding of the cosmos. However, it turns out that this accommodation isn't just about accommodating to people's level of understanding. It also means accommodating the important stories to the lives of the people who are reading them. So the world that Abraham lived is described in ways that would be familiar to the Hebrews living a thousand years later, and his life and story are retold in ways that address the issues and events that they were struggling with in their day, torn from the land of their ancestors, exiled in a foreign land without a home, afraid and feeling utterly insignificant. And these exiles would have remembered the story of their ancestors, Abraham and Sarah. They would have remembered that they too were insignificant. Because you see, there's a reason why I used Robin Hood as an example to compare to Abraham. There are other figures who lived in 13th century England that we know quite well that they existed. Kings and nobles and bishops, those whose names were written down because they were powerful. But Robin Hood was a commoner, a folk hero, living among those who would have been considered insignificant, too insignificant to record. And there are many individuals who lived in the time of Abraham who historians have no trouble saying that they are historical figures. They were the great kings of the massive cities in Mesopotamia, or the pharaohs of Egypt who built monuments to their honor. Now, we can't know how much of the details about Abraham and Sarah, which is told in the book of Genesis, differ from the older memories and traditions that the Hebrew communities in exile had. But we can say this. If they indeed existed, they were insignificant individuals. While they were alive, They left no mark in any of the significant historical events of their day, the wars and building projects or such. No one chiseled their deeds on monuments. No scribe wrote their deeds on the royal annals. Sure, they were, at least according to Genesis, well-to-do heads of an extended family, but compared to those whose names remain in the historical records from their days, they were just migrants among countless others living without property or homeland just like the exiles. But the Hebrew exiles from Israel and Judah would remember that this family who left no records and only vaguely remembered in their communities were blessed by God. They had numerous people now mentioning them as their ancestors. That is what it meant to be led by God. That is what it meant for God that unfolds all of history to unfold your life and your children's life toward a promise and toward His blessing. And so the exiles wrote. After all, they too were insignificant. So insignificant that historians today can only guess at who their ancestors really were. They were insignificant in the land of their captors, the mighty Babylonian Empire that had raised their homes to the ground. They were insignificant next to the captors' towering ziggurats, palaces, and monuments, proudly extolling their conquests and their accomplishments. And here they were, far from home, cut off from their roots, without a land or a nation to call their own. Then they wrote about a promise. Perhaps they repeated the promise that their ancestors received long ago word for word, or perhaps they wrote the words that resonated with them now. And they wrote, The Lord said, 
Go out from your country, your relatives, and your father's household to a land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and bless you. I will make you significant so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and those who treat you as insignificant. I will make them insignificant. And all the families of the world will be blessed through you. And did this happen in history? Does God really unfold history in the direction of this promise to real people? Well, here I am, 2,600 years later, someone of Korean descent from literally the very edge of the land far beyond what the ancient Hebrews ever knew about. And now in Canada, in another continent altogether on the other side of the globe, I am doing a podcast about Abraham's family and the writers of Genesis. Well, that's not all there is to it. I mean, if we end there, you could just say that, oh, this is just selection bias of uh, who won out in history. But this promise is but an opening to their story, which will explore what it means to follow that promise, to face the hardship and challenges, to go through the times when it seems like that promise is but a mirage, and then encounter God on the other side. So please join me next time as we go into the life story of Abraham and Sarah, as recounted by the Hebrew exiles writing the book of Genesis. And please support this series by following, subscribing, and sharing this series with others, and by rating it on your Apple Podcast platform. You can also support this series at buymeacoffee.com. The link for that is in the episode description.